when I was in high school, I, I think it was my junior or my senior year, I, uh, I found one of my best friends found out that she was being proselytized by two uh, Mormon missionaries, uh, a group that we would not recognize as being uh, Christians, and we'll see why in just a few minutes. But more than just talking uh, with these young men, she was hanging out with them socially, uh, befriending them, going to their meetings, and apparently being taken in by their teaching of the Bible. And in something of a panic, a mutual friend of ours called and said, I think she's about to be baptized into the Mormon church. You've got to do something. And so I called her up, and you know, I thought, I'm going to put it into this in about five minutes. In fact, I thought, one question, one question I will ask, and because of the answer, this will all be over. So I call her up and I talk and I say, how are the, how are the elders? How are the Mormon elders, your, your missionary friends? What's, what, what's going on with them? And, and uh, how, how are you thinking about their church? And she said, yeah, I'm thinking about it. And, and I said, well, you know, uh, the Mormons don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. I thought that would be it. I thought she would immediately say, oh, um, well, that's no good. Then I, I, you know, that's, not, that's not the church for me. Instead, the response I got was, yeah, I never understood that, so it's not really important to me. Well, needless to say, the conversation did not go well because I was completely uh, floundering at that point. I mean, I didn't know what else to say. I was completely taken aback that this uh, young woman who had grown up in the church, who came to all of the Bible studies, who, who had gone on mission trips with me, who in every way professed faith in Christ, revealed she really didn't know really who Christ was. And, and she had no understanding, no acceptance of a core doctrine of the Christian faith. As I began to think about that, it kind of rattled me. And for several weeks, I, I kept thinking about this. And I kept thinking, if someone like this doesn't know or see the importance of the Trinity, how many more people in the church are not going to understand or know or see the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, this morning we are continuing uh, this new series that we have begun looking at uh, the kind of vintage historic faith of Christianity. And we're looking specifically at those core doctrines, those kind of fundamental things that make us Christian. Within Christianity, there's lots of secondary issues. There's uh, third level or tertiary issues that, that frankly we can disagree about and still be Christians. Uh, things like the meaning and mode of baptism that we think we understand biblically, but our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would think that they understand biblically. And those things are not essential to Christian identity. But we're looking at these things that say this is what means you're either in or you're out, frankly. And last week we looked at Scripture, and this week we want to look at the doctrine of the Trinity. And we want to understand not just this doctrine, we want to see that it's a biblical doctrine and that it's important. It has not just importance for the Christian faith as a whole, but practical implications for how we live our life. People historically have been put to death because they refused to deny the Trinity. That's how important some of our forefathers in the faith have seen this doctrine. The question is, do we understand its importance? If, if on pain of death someone said, deny your belief in the Trinity, would we say, yeah, sure, fine, whatever. Or would we at least pause and think about this is a truth worth dying for? Well, this morning, in order to uh, begin getting our bearings in this doctrine of uh, the Trinity, one of the doctrines that is probably one of the most significant and weighty, we want to begin by reading Matthew chapter uh, 3. So I would encourage you to follow along as I read, beginning at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the Word of God. In this passage, we see God sending his prophet John to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, for Jesus Christ, the King, who would also be the Savior for his sinful people uh, from the wrath of a holy God. This forerunner, John, uh, told the people to prepare their hearts for this coming Savior by repenting, by turning away from their sins, by getting on the right path, as it were, before God, preparing themselves to receive the Savior that he was going to send them, and Specifically, in looking at the religious leaders, he said, don't depend on your religion. Don't depend on the fact that you've grown up uh, as the people of God, as ethnic Israel. You know the temple. You've offered the sacrifices. Don't depend on just this religious experience of external things. Rather, uh, depend on the fact that you need to know God personally. You individually repent from your sins and turn toward the living God. And one day as John is preaching and baptizing, the Savior that he is preaching about comes before him from God. He is the one he has been waiting for. And although John does not understand it, this Jesus will be the Savior of his people by standing in their place, enduring God's judgment for their sins, earning by his own life a righteousness that God will consider theirs so that sinful people can be made right with a holy God. And Jesus, in order to fulfill righteousness, he tells John, is baptized not because he needs to repent, but because in being baptized, he is identifying with us, those that he would die for, sinners who do need to repent. Now, what we have here is a clear glimpse of the Trinity. The problem is it, or, uh, the, the problem is it is not a defining picture of the Trinity. It doesn't tell us all there is to know about it. You have God the Father to claim from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased as Jesus is baptized. And when this has taken place, the Spirit of God himself descends upon Jesus, uh, marking him out as God's servant, as the Messiah who is to come, empowering him for that ministry. 
But what does all this mean for us? What direction does this point us to for our understanding of God and how we are to live our minds, our, our lives? And this morning, this is what we want to look at. We want to seek to plunge the depths of the Bible and seek to come to a greater uh, understanding, a clear understanding of the Trinity. And so this morning, I want to do uh, three things. First, I want us to define what the doctrine of the Trinity is. I want us to define what it means to believe God is triune. Then I want us to see how this triune God, how this triuneness, if I can coin a phrase, is worked out in biblical history. What does this look like for God's existence? And then finally, uh, what is the implications of this doctrine for our lives? Okay. Now, <clears throat> Many of you will know my typical approach in preaching is to take uh, one chunk of Scripture and to explain what's there and apply it to your lives. The problem is, uh, both in this text and throughout the Bible, there is no one text that tells us all there is to know about the Trinity. Uh, uh, Paul does not write in Romans 18 and says, here's the Trinity, here's all that it is and what it means for your life. So what we have to do uh, is go through uh, a lot of Scripture today and build up our doctrine of the Trinity and its implications uh, for our lives. And I just want you to know that that means is we're going to be moving around the Bible a lot. And unless you are a, a Bible drill champ like Austin back there, I doubt you're going to be flipping all the way through. So what you need to know, and that was a compliment to Austin, just so you know, uh, what you need to know is all the verse references are in the sermon notes this morning. So when you hear me say something, you think, oh, I'm going to look at that circle that or check it off or whatever, and you'll have, be able to, to go back through and see exactly what, what I've been getting at, okay? So three things this morning, and uh, again, this, is, uh, this will be weightier, heavier than, than, than most messages that I preach, but I don't think it's undoable. In fact, several people from the first service actually said it was good, so hopefully that will be uh, an encouragement to you. The first thing I want to see is, is definition, understanding the existence of the triune God, understanding the existence of of the triune God. What is this doctrine of the Trinity? Well, the Bible teaches this. There is only one true and living God, yet that one God has existed eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person is fully and completely God, yet remains distinct in his personhood in eternal fellowship with uh, the Godhead, with the other persons of the Trinity. Now, Frankly, as we start to think about that, one God existing as three persons, not three gods, but three persons, one God, uh, our minds kind of begin to, to fizzle, right? You're thinking, you know, uh, how do I get my mind around that? And I think part of the problem is there's nothing like that in the rest of creation. There, there's no good analogy, there's no good metaphor that we can draw from uh, to help us understand that. People have tried. People have said, well, look to the sun. You have this burning ball of gas, and from it we have uh, both heat and light. And so you have three in one. Or you say, look to, look to the egg. You have the egg uh, white. You have its shell, and you have the yolk, three in one. St. Patrick even used the, the, the clover, right, and it's three leaves. Now, the problem with that is uh, it still doesn't hold up as an exact analogy of the Trinity. After all, if you were to go out to eat this afternoon, in fact, say you went down the road to Cracker Barrel and said you wanted breakfast, and you said, I want pancakes and, and an omelet. And in your omelet, you said, throw me in there some green peppers and a little, some little bacon bits and some cheese on top. And what they brought you was eggshell with, with pepper and, and, and all this other. You would say, uh, I don't think so. Nice try. Where's the egg? Right? You can't look at an eggshell and say, where's the egg? But Father, you can look at him and say, there's God. The Spirit, you can look at him and say, there's God. The Son, you can look at him and say, there's God. Furthermore, when we think about the Son, um, you know, 
how do you relate to a star? Can't, right? How does the star relate to itself? Is the heat and the light and the, the burning gas talking to one another? No, I mean, that just doesn't, it doesn't work. And yet that is exactly the picture given of God in the Scripture. That through all eternity he has perfect loving fellowship with himself. So all of these analogies uh, begin to break down. And yet, and yet what that should not do is drive us to put our head in the sand and say, well, I just can't understand it. Uh, what it should drive us to do is say, this is something uniquely inherent to the person of God. Therefore, I want to know as much about this as I possibly can. Because the more I know about this, the more I'm going to know God himself. Well, as we think about this existence of the Trinity, what I want to do is, it, it, here is, is do two things. First of all, I want to show you that it's, it's a biblical doctrine. I want to show you from the text of Scripture why we believe this Scripture, why we think, uh, as I talked about in the, in, in just a few minutes ago, why we think other groups that deny the Trinity are wrong. It's not just because we don't like them. Um, it's not because we, we, we think they are somehow inferior, but they are, we believe they're not accurately reading the Bible. So we, we need to see how the Bible conveys the Trinity. And then what I want to do is go over a couple of errors we want to make sure that we do not make in trying to understand the Trinity. So, one God who exists in three persons, each fully and completely God. First of all, uh, no one disputes God the Father is God, right? I mean, in fact, when you think about God, usually that's who you think of, right? That's kind of your default setting. And it's just all throughout the Bible. So what I want to do is focus on this, this question of, is the Son, is Jesus fully God? Is the Spirit fully God? Well, Jesus is clearly identified as God in the flesh in the opening verses of John's Gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God, and at the same time, with God. And then later he says, the Word became flesh, only one person who's done that, Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. What kind of glory? Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side, but he has made him known. So Jesus' best friend is earthly existence. John the Apostle says, what I saw was God in the flesh. What did Jesus think? Well, Jesus uh, very clearly believed he was more than just a man. Uh, in talking with the Jewish religious leaders, he claimed to be their God, uh, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I Am. He told them, in fact, as they said, well, you think you're greater than Abraham? And he says, I'll tell you this, before Abraham was, I am. And it doesn't just simply mean Jesus was saying he lived before. It means that, but specifically, he could be both here and there because he was more than just a man. He is God in the flesh. Furthermore, others attribute deity to Jesus like Thomas when he sees him raised from the dead. What, what does he say? He says, first of all, when he's not seen him, he says, I'm not, I'm not going to believe it. You know, I know it's wishful thinking. You want Jesus to be alive. But listen, unless I can touch and I can see, forget it. And what happens? He touches and he sees, doesn't he? And he doesn't, you know, I've heard someone say, well, he got excited and issued a profanity. No, 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 no. Thomas looked at the risen Jesus and he said, my Lord and my God. He knew who was standing before him. Likewise, Paul repeatedly says that Jesus is divine. In Romans 9, 5, in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, and in Titus 2, 13. And Hebrews says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Whether it's true or not, and I think it's true, the New Testament 
writers clearly believed that Jesus was more than just a man. He was fully God manifested in the flesh. So what about the Spirit? With the Holy Spirit? To tell you the truth, I have to be honest and say, when I was growing up in the church, I didn't hear a lot about the Holy Spirit. Uh, it wasn't until I got older and I began thinking about this, you know, uh, Father, Son, Spirit. What, uh, and this is my thinking, what is this thing called the Spirit? You know, and I think probably for me back then, and, and some Christians, maybe even today, that the, your, your thinking longs, goes along the lines of the Spirit is some kind of impersonal force. He's, he's, he's analogized, isn't he, to, to the wind and other things in the scriptures. So you think, well, it's kind of like the power of God moving around or something. And so when Paul will say something like, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, many of us are thinking of a little green guy with pointy ears saying, may the force be with you, right? I mean, I mean that, that's kind of what we think of this, kind of mysterious, kind of weird. But that's not how the scriptures present the Holy Spirit. It presents him both as fully God, but also as a person, The Bible is clear that he is divine and has personhood. As God, the Spirit is said to be eternal. Hebrews 9, omnipresent. Psalm 139, omniscient. 1 Corinthians 2, omnipotent. Luke 1, and holy. Romans 1. But it is not just the divine force, but the divine person. We see this, first of all, by virtue of the fact that the New Testament refers to him as he. The, The word for spirit... Uh, and, and the original language does not have masculine gender. If you were going to follow the laws of grammar, uh, you, would, you would say it. It is coming. But the writers intentionally break the grammatical rule and say he is coming. More than that, we see throughout the New Testament, the Spirit is one who comforts, John 12. He is one who teaches, John 14. He is one who speaks, Acts 8. He is one who makes decisions, Acts 15. He is one who grieves over your sin, Ephesians 4. He is one who overrules human action, Acts 6. He is the one who searches the deep things of God and knows the very thoughts of God the Father, 1 Corinthians 2. And these things come together in Acts 5 where Peter tells Ananias, you lied to the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means, he says, you lied to God. Can't lie to the wind. Can't lie to the wind. Can't lie to an impersonal force. But you can lie to a person who the scriptures clearly hold up as God. So the scriptures are clear over and over again that there is one God. And yet it also says the Father is God. The Son is God. And the Spirit is God. And so biblically, uh, it's, it's easy to see how this doctrine of the Trinity comes together. There is one true and living God, and yet he exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now the problem is, taking that evidence that's there, people have made mistakes. They've fallen into error in how they seek to understand this. Partly it's because of the fact that it's difficult to get our minds around. But the other part is we're also sinful people at heart, aren't we? And we will always take and twist the truth of God uh, into something that we want rather than something that what God wants. There's all kinds of errors that we could go over, lots of goofy names from church history. Let me just give you three prominent errors uh, that have existed in the early days of church history and still exist today, frankly. First, there is the multiple personality God. Now, historically, that's known as modalism or more recently oneness theology. But basically it says this, there is one God who does not exist as three persons, but rather reveals himself 
with three personalities. So in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Then to bring about the new covenant, uh, he changed clothes, as it were, or personalities, and then revealed himself as Jesus Christ. But then as he launched the church after his ascension, uh, he did another transformation and came back down uh, in, the, in the appearance of the Holy Spirit among his people. Well, again, this doesn't fit the biblical evidence. When Jesus, when Jesus is praying and he says, Father, uh, you're going to send the Spirit. Now, maybe you could say the Father and the Spirit are the one, but who's Jesus praying to himself? That doesn't make any sense. We say, well, we can't understand it because our minds are finite. Well, maybe, but you still have Jesus being deceitful in front of his disciples, don't you? That doesn't work that way. The Bible is clear. There are, there are Father, Son, and Spirit who have eternally coexisted. And so we don't have a God who is, um, again, one of multiple personalities. Rather, we have one God eternally existing as three persons. Then secondly, there's the error of the deficient Jesus. The deficient Jesus. Historically, this is called Arianism because it was made popular by a man named Arius in the 4th century. This belief simply says this. Because there's only one God, Jesus could not have fully been God. He could have been fully divine. And so thus, while he has an exalted status as the first and greatest of created beings, he's just that, a created being, not God in the flesh. But again, this is not what Jesus claimed for himself, is it? Jesus himself claimed to be God, and the scriptures affirm that as well. Um, and let me just pause there and say this too. You know, if, if Jesus is not fully gone, um, then salvation fails. Christianity begins to unravel. Because if Jesus is not both fully man and fully God, then you have a problem because he cannot stand, serve as mediator between sinful people and the holy God. Uh, this is what makes him uniquely fit to be the savior of all humanity because he is the only one who is both fully God and fully man. He is the great, uh, the, the great bridge between the gap that exists between us. So if you try and say, well, Jesus wasn't God. He was, he was great. He was holy. He's per-. No, no, no. Either he's God... Or your sins are not forgiven, and your faith is in vain. Finally, there is uh, what I call the tag team Godhead. This is sometimes called tritheism, and says there's not just one God, but three gods. There's three individual gods. And in fact, again, this goes, uh, not really wanting to, to pick on them this morning, because we can mention a lot of other people, but this is, uh, goes into the belief of Mormonism, where in fact there's more than three gods. Each person can achieve divinity for himself. You understand, throughout church history, these things have popped up and they've all been determined to be uh, heresy, errors in Christian understanding. Not because if you read a Dan Brown novel, well, people wanted authority you know, in the church and political power. That had nothing to do with it. That's just not what the Bible teaches. And that's not what the church has always recognized. So when this came up, they said, no, 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 that's not right. That's not right. And likewise, for us today, uh, we need to see that those things are not right. The Bible teaches that there is only one true and living God, yet that one God has existed eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each person fully and completely God, yet remaining distinct in their personhood. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's frankly the longest portion of the message this morning. Now we want to ask ourselves the question, how do we see this worked out in the Scriptures? So here we want to look at the second point, manifestation, beholding the work of the triune God. Beholding the work of the triune God. My senior year um, uh, in college, I was a, uh, uh, in the Bible, I was a Bible major and uh, going into pastoral ministries. And, and several of my friends were also in that same uh, track because we all had classes together. 
and after you have a year of having five, six, seven, eight classes with the same people, you kind of get to know them. And so uh, one of the guys um, who was actually one of, uh, one of the grooms at my wedding, we were having lunch one day, and, and uh, we're, we're eating, and we're kind of, you know, it's been a, it's been late, it was like the end of the semester, and we're both kind of wiped out, and, and, he, and he just starts laughing. and says, oh, man, i got to tell you what my roommate said last night. And, you know, in college, one a good story, so, you know, I swallowed the bite, put the thing down. Tell me the story. What happened? And he says, so, he says, my roommate's working on this paper last night. And my friend Dan says, he turns to me, my roommate, and says, uh, Dan, I got a question. Can you help me with this Bible paper? And he says, yeah, sure. What do you want? He says, well, I've got this question, and, and I wanted to know, uh, you know, on the cross, when the father died, and my friend Dan said, whoa, whoa, what? What did you just say? And his roommate said, well, you know, on the cross, Jesus is God, the Father is God, Jesus died on the cross, so the Father died on the cross. And my, my, my friend Dan said, no, 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 no. Uh, and he began to explain why that was wrong. And I have to say, at the time, it probably wasn't right, but it kind of reinforced our belief uh, that uh, the Christian education majors only had to pass classes that dealt with crayons and, and, and glue sticks and, and, and not the tough Bible classes that we pastoral majors did. But that's neither here nor there, and I've long repented of that, kind of. Uh, so, uh, but, but the question is, was he, was he right or wrong? I mean, that's a... Uh, people... Legitimate. Here's a guy grown up in church, and this was his legitimate way of thinking. Is that is that how we conceive of it? And the answer is no. And what we'll see in just a second here is that through the outworking of the scriptures, it is clear that each person of the triune Godhead has willingly and joyfully taken on specific roles and responsibilities within the outworking of God's plan. So let's just look at uh, four of these things. First of all, the Trinity in creation. The Bible is clear that the world came to exist through God. If you want to talk about that or debate that with lots of other uh, mechanisms, not least of which evolution, uh, that is for another sermon or a cup of coffee uh, later on. But right now, we just want to affirm the Bible says very clearly, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The New Testament sheds more light on this is more clear about this event speaking of jesus in john chapter 1 and says all things were made through him that is jesus the word and without him was not anything made that was made now again we don't know the exact mechanism of this but what we're told is that god the father is creating through god the son and the spirit as he is creating uh, moves to bring an immediacy to the presence of god over all of creation god is at work creating the world and yet each of the persons is doing though something unified yet distinct then we also want to see the trinity in revelation that is how we got the revelation of god himself the bible now we looked at this in fact this very passage last week but we just want to highlight it again peter says this and, and Again, listen closely to the language at the argument that he's making. We did not follow, this is uh, 2 Peter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What was Peter and the apostles teaching? The power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we have something more sure, the prophetic Word, which you will do well to pay attention to. And then he says in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So here Peter says, as apostles, and specifically he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus kind of, kind of pulled back the veil on his glory a little bit, and, and, and his, his divinity was, was in, in some small way revealed. And remember, Peter was so excited about this, he said, man, this is great, let's just pitch some tents and live up here on this mountain. We got Moses, we got Elijah, we got you, we don't need anything else. And Jesus says, no, we're not ready for that yet. And what Peter is saying is, look, we told you this happened. We are apostolic witnesses to the work of Jesus Christ, his divinity, his work on the cross. And as we are proclaiming these things to you, we are speaking God's words. How? Through the power of the Spirit as he carries us along. We see the Trinity in the incarnation as well. The incarnation being that that word that describes the infleshing of Jesus, God the Son, who came into the world. How did it happen? How did God the Son come to take on flesh? An angel in Luke 1 tells Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he shall be called Son of the Most High. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you, of the, uh, over, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It is the power of the Most High God through the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit that brought about the creation of Jesus' human body, which Jesus, uh, or, or which God the Son then, uh, somehow, mysteriously, uh, becomes uh, fused together with so that you have uh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, fully God and fully human. And his incarnation. Then finally, we see the Trinity in salvation. We see this from Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, God, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. Paul explains salvation was, is not just this random thing that happens. The totality of who God is is working to bring about salvation for his people. We see the Father planning out to save sinners. Words like electing and choosing and that, that planning of salvation is brought into reality through the incarnation, the death and resurrection of God the Son. He secures the salvation that is to be given to those who trust in him by faith. And then that salvation does not remain abstract, but is specifically then applied to the life of the believer through the Spirit of God. Paul is clear, as well as Peter, that it is the Spirit who gives life to our hearts, who grants new birth upon hearing the gospel, so that we believe. And so Peter says all of this, all of this salvation has taken place, 1 Peter 1, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. My point is this. There are times when a situation comes up 
something needs to be taken care of. There's a problem. Sometimes it's big, sometimes it's little. But uh, perhaps it's through email or through a phone call or something. But my wife, Melinda, will hear about it at a different time than I will. Maybe she's at work and someone sends her an email. Maybe someone else calls me and tells me about it. And so uh, immediately we begin thinking about what are we going to do with this situation? Is it something invo- you know, a problem with the house? Is it a problem with the kids? Is it something going on at church or someone's at the hospital? Uh, how are we, we going to resolve this? And um, she'll begin, to her credit, begin making plans. Okay, I'm going I'm to make sure that this gets taken care of. And it may not be a bad plan. The problem is we haven't talked about it. So guess what I'm doing? I'm making a plan saying here's how this is going to get taken care of. And what winds up happening? If we don't talk to each other, if we do not communicate, we may have the same goal in mind, but we're going about it in two totally different ways so that um, either one of us has wasted our efforts or the thing doesn't actually get done. And my point is to say, God doesn't do that. God never does that. For although they take on different roles and responsibilities, there is a focused unity to their work so that as the Father is bringing about plans and administering those plans through His Son, the Spirit is bringing those things to fruition in the lives of His people. There is a constant, perfect unity of purpose amidst their different workings in our lives. So this is the Trinity. The question is, what difference does it make in your life? This afternoon, a week from Thursday, how is this doctrine going to affect how you live. I think that the implications of this doctrine can be seen in at least three areas, and then we'll be done. So number three, implications, living in light of a triune God. Living in light of a triune God. First of all, understanding the Trinity affects our worship. It affects our worship. You know, right before the cross, in John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, Jesus gives his final teaching to his disciples. And you know the thing that comes out more in those chapters than anywhere else in the Gospels? The Trinity. How God the Son relates to God the Father. How God the Father and God the Son relate to God the Spirit. He's emphasizing this greatness so that when he goes to the cross, even though his disciples may not understand it, they will not be totally blown off the map either. They will be buffeted by this sense of greatness of who Jesus is. Likewise for us, when we come to grips with the glory of the triune God, the more we comprehend the incomprehensible nature of God, the more we come to see his exalted nature, the more we will be humbled before him. So why is that humbling good for our worship? Well, frankly, it comes down to this. We don't stand in awe of things that, that are just like us. If something looks just like us, it's just there. Might be good, might be bad, might be totally indifferent. But when we stand before something that is greater than us, when you go to the museum, to the museum and you see these bony remains of a woolly mammoth and you just stare and look at this thing and think, look at this thing. Can you imagine when it had flesh and fur and it's charging around and getting food? It's amazing and we stand in awe of this thing. Or perhaps uh, this summer when it's a nice clear night and, you, and, and you, you go out and perhaps it's behind your house, you turn the lights on and you look up into what appears to be an infinite expanse of the universe lit up by, by millions and billions and science state out even trillions and quadrillions of stars and galaxies out the sky. You just stay over there and you think, oh, it's amazing. You just stand in awe of that thing. Or perhaps you go out to the Grand Canyon out west. I mean... It, there's something of a mystery about that because largely it's a big ditch, right? 
I mean, it just cuts right across a couple of states. But, but why do we stand in awe? Because it's not just a big ditch. It's a huge ditch. This thing is amazing. You can't throw a rock across it. You can't kind of skip over it. Uh, it's, it it's, it's massive. And you're standing, look at this thing, and you're taking pictures, and it just takes your breath away. Why? Because the human heart loves to stand in awe of something greater than itself. And here's the thing. If, 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 we, if we try and, and say, I'm not going to worry about knowing that much of God, and he remains small in our hearts, he's not going to matter to us. But if God is shown to be huge in our hearts, if our vision of him is massive, we will stand in awe before him, and it will make our worship all the richer and all the sweeter because he gets the glory he deserves. Secondly, what about our relationships? You know, there are lots of, um, well, places all over the place, magazines, books, news, and they will always put monotheistic religions into one group. Okay, now Zoroastrianism is all but gone, so they don't really talk about that one too much. Uh, but it's still around. But you have mainly Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, and they will specifically say, you guys worship the same God, why can't you get along? Because we don't worship the same God. And there's a fundamental difference in our understanding about God, and it comes down to this issue of the Trinity. Three persons in one God. You know, when I was little, I can remember being in Sunday school, and the teacher explaining, you know, God's always been around. It's always been there. But, you know, one day he got lonely and decided to create people. Now you get older and you say, wait a minute, I've read the book. God's not lonely. What are you trying to pull here? God's never been lonely. You know, don't think God's in an eternity past kind of twiddling his thumbs thinking, boy, it'd be nice if I had some animals or something to look at. You know, that's not the picture of God. In fact, Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, he's praying. In John 17, he says, you know, I have to go through the cross and the resurrection and experience glory, but I will return to a greater glory. And I long to be in that glory, that fellowship, that eternal love that you and I shared. Long before anything was created, God had fellowship, loving fellowship with himself. Therefore, when we think about the fellowship and the love and the relationships that we have with one another, suddenly God becomes the example. So how do you relate to one another as a church? You look to God as the example. When you think about how to relate to your spouse, you look to God in the fullness of the Trinity as your example. We see a love that isn't selfish and in perfect unity and harmony. Finally, our service, our service to God and to one another. When Jesus was on his way to the cross, he found himself just hours before his arrest by the Romans and the Jewish authorities in the garden praying. And in the full humanity of his being, he knew what was coming and the cross. And he, on some level, didn't want to go. It doesn't make him less than God. It makes him fully human. As you think about what, what this thing represented, to be hanging there, stark raving naked, mocked, beaten, Nails driven through your hands and your feet. A crown of thorns drilled down in your skull. Who wants that? No one. But what did Jesus say? Did he say, you know what? I don't like this plan. What's plan B? Uh, you know, I, you know I, I, I don't like pain and suffering. I like the good life. So can we do this some other way? That's not what he says. We know that's not what he says. Hebrews tells us that on the onset of his ministry... Jesus said to the Father, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
And now, almost at the end of his earthly ministry, as he thinks about not just the brutality of the cross itself, but the cup of judgment from God that he will have to drink down for his people. He says, not as I will, but as you will, O God. Jesus was fully God. He wasn't a little bit God. He wasn't part God. He wasn't half God. He wasn't part of God. He was fully God of the same substance of the Father, yet out of love, he willingly submitted himself to the Father's will. So when God gives us clear commands to live by in the Scripture, when the Spirit nudges our hearts to think about those commands and to see how they would work out in this area of our life, what's our response? God, I don't like pain and suffering. God, I don't want to be bothered by that right now. I have, I have a lot on my plate. God, I, I like my paycheck. I like my third car. I like my house. I like being able to go to church and say hi to some people, then come home and, and, and just that, that's my place and nobody else needs to come over there. I, I don't want to think about 6,400 people groups that have never heard the gospel. I don't want to think about those things. I just, I just want to stay here, God. I know it's your will, but this is my will. Unlike Jesus, do we have to humbly say, it's not my will, God, but yours I long to do. Someone once asked the great American statesman Daniel Webster how he could believe in the Trinity. How can a man of your mental caliber believe that three equals one, the person asked. Webster replied this, I do not pretend to fully understand the arithmetic of heaven now. I think if someone says, how can you believe the Trinity? We have to say, I don't understand how it works. I mean, frankly, I I don't get that because I, I see no parallel anywhere else. But I am clear about this. This is what the Bible teaches. And because the Bible teaches it, because God has said, this is who I am, then I will believe it. And I will seek to understand it the best I can. And I will, because of it, be confident that Jesus really is the Savior for my sins. I will be confident that, that God is not some distant, far-off God out there who's uninterested in the workings of my life. But just as he is eternally related to the Son and the Spirit, so also now he calls me to repentance that he might relate with me through his Son, Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the Trinity is important not just for the Christian faith, but for how we live our lives each and every day as those who claim Christ as our Savior and Lord. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for re- that you revealed this aspect of yourself to us. We pray, God, that we would not run away seeking to uh, bury our heads in the sand, wanting to ignore the complexity of this great doctrine, but that, God, we would embrace it by faith, that we would come to delight in it even as we delight in you. So, Father, I pray that in the coming days and weeks and months and years, God, that you would help us to continue to seek out and to see this doctrine of the Trinity as you have revealed it through your word. And, God, may it be a great encouragement to us as we seek to live for your glory in this life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, the power of your spirit. Amen.